What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. The Economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ora Ogunbiyi. And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. How many airports do you reckon a country of 1.4 billion people needs? Well, a lot. India now has double the number that it had a decade ago, and it's still building more in a concerted effort to get millions of people off the ground. And it's one of the holiday season's most divisive topics. You either love or hate eggnog. We look into the creamy, boozy beverage's history, and yes, of course, I have one along the way. First up, though. At the end of a disappointing week, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has scored a small victory. Yesterday, European Union leaders agreed to start membership discussions with his country. The message to Moscow is a very clear one. We will not be intimidated. The European unity is there and we are on the side of Ukrainians, even at the most difficult moments. It may be a welcome development, but what Ukraine really needs is military aid. Hungary has blocked a $55 billion package from the EU, and in America, a further $60 billion is being held up by Congress. That has become tangled up in domestic American politics, and senators have now agreed to delay their holiday and continue negotiations on that package next week. Members of Congress, I have the high privilege and the distinct honor of presenting to you His Excellency Volodymyr Zelensky, President of the Ukraine. When Mr. Zelensky was in Washington just a year ago, he addressed a joint session of Congress with words of hope for what would come in 2023. Against all odds and doom and gloom scenarios, Ukraine didn't fall. Ukraine is alive and kicking. Back then, he received a hero's welcome and support that seemed like it would be unwavering. But this week, when he stood next to US President Joe Biden in a press conference after their meeting, it was a rather different story. Vladimir Zelensky came to Washington in a last-ditch effort to secure aid from the United States, especially to get Congress to lift its block. And he did not look especially happy. Anton LaGuardia is the diplomatic editor at The Economist. Though he tried to put a brave face, was very thankful to President Joe Biden and to Congress for the support they have given thus far. But although Vladimir Zelensky was the special guest, 
most of the attention was on Joe Biden. Why is that? Because he has been trying for months to get Congress to vote through more aid for Ukraine. The money for Ukraine has been running out. It'll probably run out by the end of the year. The administration and the rest of the West collectively have said, we will help Ukraine for as long as it takes. But this week, we heard Joe Biden change his language. He said, we'll help Ukraine for as long as we can. We'll continue to supply Ukraine with critical weapons and equipment as long as we can, including $200 million I just approved today in a critical needed equipment, additional air defense interceptors, artillery, and ammunition. But without supplemental funding, we're rapidly coming to an end of our ability to help Ukraine respond to the urgent operational demands that it has. Putin is banking on the United States failing to deliver for Ukraine. We must, we must, we must prove him wrong. Because the power of the purse, he knows, and everyone else knows, rests with Congress. And at the moment, the purse is shut. So in his visit this week, was Zelensky able to win over any hearts and minds? It's difficult to tell. He's obviously energized the people who believe in the cause of Ukraine, particularly in the Democratic Party. But among Republicans, now consumed by the election, and you very much feel the presence of Donald Trump in the background, things have not changed. And even Ukraine supporters have regretfully said that there's nothing he can say that will change the situation. As Lindsey Graham, what particularly hawkish senator, put it, has got nothing to do with Ukraine. It's all about America and the Republican Party and its demand that any money for security abroad has to include a package for what they call security at home, which is tougher measures and a change in asylum law to prevent the inflow of migrants across the border from Mexico. Anton, how did this become an issue about American security? Well, it's a very strange thing that has happened because what should be an issue of bipartisan consensus, which is to support a fellow embattled democracy trying to repel an autocratic Russia, and also to support other countries because this aid package includes aid for Israel and Taiwan and other national security causes, is now being held hostage to a highly partisan domestic issue, which has been a subject of contention for decades. But now the border is an issue in which the Republicans are campaigning, and it's an issue in which the Democrats feel vulnerable. So to an extent, there is scope for an agreement, but the demand that they're putting down, the Democrats say, is too extreme. And that is because the Republican Party in the House of Representatives, where they hold a shrinking majority is rather different from the Republican Party in the Senate, which seems more minded to find an agreement. So are no Republicans willing to see past partisanship on this issue? I think it is difficult for them and is becoming increasingly difficult. They have a narrow majority in the House, and they also have a much more vociferous faction wedded to America first make America great again style isolationism pushed by Donald Trump. And they've already lost one speaker over these divisions. And Mike Johnson, the current speaker of the House, knows that he is on thin ice. 
not least because he has agreed to roll over existing spending in order to avoid a shutdown of the federal government. And that has upset people on the populist right. The difficulties will only get worse. It seems extremely unlikely they'll get a deal on the border before Christmas. Once it goes into January, you're then back into the difficult debate over spending bills. And this Congress has shown time and again that when it comes to a choice between preventing the shutdown of the federal government and continuing aid to Ukraine, they plump for keeping the federal government going. Time is not on Ukraine's side. Is there anything left that the Democrats can do to support Ukraine further without supporting Congress from the Republicans? The Democrats cannot do this alone because though they control the Senate, they don't control the House. They tried to present a bill that had only the National Security Supplemental, and the Republicans voted it down. I think that perhaps if the situation deteriorates markedly on the battlefield, there may be people next year who say we really can't let Vladimir Putin score a victory because of our paralysis. But I fear that actually the opposite will happen. Anton, what comes next for Zelensky as he watches foreign support dry up? He needs to revisit his military plans, probably. His counteroffensive had failed. He will need to now think about holding what he has and defending. And defending with dwindling amounts of support, which will be difficult. The one thing that holds some promise is that they can keep the Black Sea route open, and that will bring in a channel for exports which will revive the economy, which will allow the Ukrainians to do more and pay for the army. Another element of hope is that they can revive their defense industry, which used to be extremely active in Soviet times and then withered. But again, you may well see in the spring, unless something changes, the Ukrainians going onto the back foot and perhaps at some point starting to retreat. One hope is that Europe will continue to provide funds. It has, in recent months, pulled well ahead of the United States in providing overall military aid. And in crucial ways, it's actually been more important because this aid has been for multi-year assistance. However, the mood in Europe is also souring, and Hungary in particular is holding up a proposed plan to provide 50 billion in aid to Ukraine over several years. The difficulty is that Europe cannot get military assistance quickly enough to Ukraine to help it hold its line. And for that, you need America to be involved. Anton, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ori. Good to talk to you. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. 
A few weeks ago, I went to Navi Mumbai, a satellite city of Mumbai, to look at the new airport that is rising over there. Leo Mirani is an Asia correspondent for The Economist. On this site, there are some 8,000 workers laboring in shifts around the clock. And just to get to the point where these workers can start laying the runway and start building the terminals, they had to blast away 55 million cubic meters of rock from a hill that they had to level. They had to drain swamps. They had to acquire a number of villages and move 3,000 families away. So just the basic groundwork to get to this point has been incredible. Construction on this airport started only in 2021, and it will be complete by the end of 2024. That's three years. That's remarkably speedy for an infrastructure project of this sort anywhere in the world. In a place like India, it's practically magic. And the airport is hardly the only one that's being built right now. It's part of a much bigger trend, and it shows Indian aviation is going through a gigantic boom. So tell me a little bit more about this boom, Leo. So... In the past 12 months alone, four brand new greenfield airports have opened in India. A similar number of new terminals have opened. Several airports across the country are being expanded or upgraded. And to give you a sense of how quickly all of this is happening and and the scale of what's happening, 10 years ago, India had about 70-something airports. Today, India has 149 operational airports and several more are in the pipeline to open next year and the year after that and the year after that. And why is there such a need for all this airport construction? Well, there's two or three reasons. First is that India is undergoing a massive transport upgrade across the board. Roads, trains, new lines, new highways, all sorts of things. And aviation is one part of the massive transport upgrade. The reason for the massive transport upgrade is that it is both a cause and an effect of India's economic expansion. You know, it's extremely well established in the literature that infrastructure growth boosts the economy, but also economic growth then creates more demand for transport, both for business travel as well as for personal travel. And just on the aviation part of it, to give you a sense of how much growth has actually happened, about a decade ago, domestic passenger numbers in India hovered around 98 million. By 2019-2020, that's basically just before the pandemic, that had doubled to 200 million. And there's absolutely no sign of that growth slowing down. Kappa India, which is an aviation consultancy, expects that India's overall aviation market will have expanded to 500 million passengers per year by 2030. So India's becoming a significant and very large market for flying. So with all this infrastructure development, where does the government come in? So the government's role in aviation infrastructure is more limited than in road or rail infrastructure, for what I think are obvious reasons. But it has played an important role in terms of policy. So the first thing, and a very important thing, is that the government has recognized that flying is not just a luxury. It's an essential, valuable means of travel for normal people now. That's number one. Number two have been specific things like a regional connectivity scheme, which has subsidized airfares. And this is valuable for two reasons. One, it brings India's peripheries closer to the center. And two, it's made it affordable for people in those places. And third, I mean, this is kind of an in-the-weeds policy, but again, a really important one and a sign of the sorts of things the government's thinking about. It's pushing states, which control this aspect of taxation, to lower taxes on aviation fuel. Again, to make flying more accessible for regular people, to make the boom more sustainable for airlines. Because I should point out, this is hardly the first aviation boom that India has had, but it does look more sustainable. Tell me a bit more about that. How is this boom different? 
So in the 1990s, when the economy liberalized, around the middle of that decade, we had a number of airlines start. There was a lot of exuberance. And, you know, within a few years, most of them went bust. And there were all these airlines. I flew on a bunch of them. There was East West and Damania and Modi Lift, all this stuff, all gone. The 2000s, you had fewer, but what appeared to be a more sustainable aviation boom. Sadly, those are all gone as well. So, I mean, it's good to be a bit skeptical when you look at an aviation boom in India and say, hmm, why is this one going to last? And I think the reason is the government policies I outlined. In addition, this time the government has has some real big ambitions, which involve taking on places like Dubai or Singapore and creating a new global aviation hub, this time in India. But Leo, economically, India is also in a better place than it was during the last boom, right? Absolutely. So the Indian economy has been growing speedily for about two, two and a half, three decades now. So there's a lot more money floating around to spend on things like holidays. Another reason to be optimistic is fares. Airfares have dropped over the years in India as everywhere else, right? But here, the primary mode of transport for middle class people used to be first class and second class long distance trains. Now airfares are comparable to those prices. And what's amazing is... At some point, when it drops to third-class long-distance rail, that's when you really see this boom in all of these optimistic forecasts play out. And it's important to remember here that currently, Indians only make 0.1 trips per person per year. By way of context, for Chinese, that's 0.5 trips per person per year. And for Americans, it's as high as 2.1 trips per person per year. So there's enormous, enormous room for growth here. The airlines are probably pretty happy about this, I guess. Happy, yes. Also extremely optimistic. And to give you a sense of how optimistic, earlier this year, Air India, the flag carrier, placed an order for 470 new aircraft. That was the largest order ever at the time. Then a few weeks later, Indigo, that's India's biggest airline, ordered 500 new planes, becoming the biggest aircraft order ever. Now, the airlines still have quite a lot of work to do. There's a number of problems that they still need to fix. India's airports are very congested and therefore flights are very, very often late. This major expansion has led to predictable problems such as a pilot shortage. The much bigger thing to remember here is that this is a market that is growing at speed, that there's a lot of people who genuinely want to travel, who haven't traveled before, who are very excited about this. And the important thing is both government and industry are aligning to ensure that that growth happens, that Indians are able to get on planes and that the country is better connected in the coming years. Leo, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure as always, Oren. Christmas time, I quite like to wind down with a good book. You know, catch up on my to-read pile that's become alarmingly large. Are any of you in the same boat? If so, we really could do with your help. The Intelligence is hoping to make a handy guide for listeners on books that will help us all make sense of our current moment in history. What would you recommend? What books do you think really capture the zeitgeist and tell us about our times? It could be one that you've read or haven't quite got around to yet. Perhaps it relates to the rise of populism, the threat of a never-ending war, the terror of new technologies, whatever you fancy. But whatever they are, I'd love to hear your recommendations. So please, please send us an email at podcast at economist.com. Eggdog is a sweet Christmas drink with a serious edge. Rachel Lloyd is The Economist's deputy culture editor. 
led to the infamous eggnog riot that happened at West Point, a military academy in America, on Christmas Day, 1826. On Christmas Eve, the cadets wanted to have a glass of eggnog, but they wanted it with their whiskey. The superintendent, who was an austere and forbidding man, had said that no alcohol was allowed on site. So a group of cadets went across the Hudson River, bought gallons of whiskey and came back and mixed it into their drink. Therefore, on Christmas Eve, when they were having their eggnog, they got incredibly drunk. About a third of the intake, so that was 90 cadets, got so drunk that they started a riot. They were smashing windows, wielding their pistols and generally being a nuisance. So that's some history involving eggnog, but what's the history of eggnog itself? Eggnog is probably derived from a drink called posset, which was popular in medieval and early modern Britain. It was a sort of custard-like drink made from some combination of cream or milk, eggs, spices, and traditionally sack wine or ale. In Britain at that time, posset was thought to have medicinal properties. Parliamentary records show that King Charles I was prescribed posset when he had a cold. So that association of flu season with the winter months is probably why eggnog is seen as a seasonal drink. There are other reasons why we probably drink eggnog at Christmas. One of them is the spices used. If you're making gingerbread, you've probably got cinnamon, nutmeg and cloves on hand. Eggnog also uses those spices, so it makes sense to make both. And Christmas is a time for indulgence. Historically, ingredients like cream or milk and fresh eggs were not easy to get in the winter. So you could justify making eggnog because it was a seasonal treat. And eggnog spread around the world is linked to colonialism, basically. Britons brought the drink to America in the early 18th century, and it's remained very popular there ever since. Americans drink roughly 61 million kilograms of the stuff every year. So fundamentally, though, it's a British invention? At its heart, yes. But there are various local varieties of eggnog. Germans have a version with wine that they call Eierpunsch. Ideally, Eierpunsch would have wine in it. And of course, a local German Riesling would be perfect. Peruvians have a version with Pisco, which is a kind of white brandy. And South Africans make a version with a local liqueur, which is made from the indigenous marula tree. Eggnog, due to the cream alcohol and eggs is quite calorific. So in the 21st century, there have been some innovations. You can now have it with almond, coconut or oat milk, which is great for the health conscious or vegans. That said, the alcohol content is always going to be high because it's traditionally served cold, which means that the alcohol doesn't evaporate like it would in a glass of mulled wine. There's a recipe that's attributed to George Washington, though the history and veracity of that is little dubious, that calls for Four different kinds of alcohol, brandy, rum, sherry and whiskey. So if you want to get really drunk at your Christmas party, follow George Washington's recipe. Yeah, no, I want to give that a go, actually. It sounds like it might put a real spin on the holiday season. Yeah, it would. And you wouldn't be the first to observe that eggnog has stupefying properties. In fact, Shakespeare in Macbeth has Lady Macbeth drug the possets of Duncan's servants so that she can get into his bedroom and they can kill him. The drink has come to be associated with all the excesses of party season. An anonymous poem published in 1817 on Christmas Eve issued a warning about eggnog. In fact, the poem is called Beware of Eggnog. When Circe the witch caught Ulysses' men, she gave each a dram that soon made him a hog. The identical mixture 
tis now as twas then, so attend to the moral, beware of eggnog. It warns that drinking it will turn respectable men into beasts. So watch out, Jason. Thanks for the warning and for your time here, Rachel. Still, though, I'm tempted to give it a go. Thanks for having me. Okay, I've scaled down the three-quart Washington recipe for a single serve. One ounce of brandy. Half ounce of rye whiskey. Half ounce of Jamaican rum. Cuban, actually. Quarter ounce of sherry. One egg. Two ounces of milk. Two ounces of cream. And two teaspoons of sugar. Not as boozy as I would have expected. Very creamy. Well, there's the booze on the back, though. Good thing I only made one. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Rory Galloway and Sarah Larniuk. Our senior creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Kevin Kaners and Maggie Kadifa, and our assistant producer is Henrietta McFarlane, with extra production help this week from Benji Guy and Emily Elias. In tomorrow's episode of The Weekend Intelligence, our correspondent tells the story of MH17, the passenger plane shot down over Ukraine almost a decade ago, and a long search for justice. For those of you who subscribe to Economist Podcast Plus, we'll see you back here tomorrow. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.